a song of ascents of David. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, that Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, when people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed up us up alive. When their anger was kindled against us, then the flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us. Then over us would have gone the raging waters. Blessed be the Lord, who has not given us as prey to their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the, the fallers. The snare is broken, and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord, who made heaven and earth. This is the word of God. Please join me as we pray together. Dear Father, we praise your name today. We are overjoyed by your presence among us. God, we don't deserve your presence. Yet, you've given yourself to us. God, you praise your name that you gave your son, your only son, your holy, perfect son, so that he can die in our place, so that we can have a relationship with you, God, so that we can be here worshiping you, praising your name. Thank you for your presence today. And God, thank you that not only did you give us your son, you also give us your, you gave us your Holy Spirit so that he can guide us, so that we are not left alone. So God, we praise your name today again for your presence. Um, and God, we come and we confess that oftentimes we don't really value your presence. We don't acknowledge this gift God, we don't rejoice in your salvation as much as we should. And we don't listen and obey to the Holy Spirit. God, I pray that you forgive our hearts. And I pray that you help us to turn away and learn how to listen to you when you speak to us. Learn how to obey. Learn how to rejoice in this beautiful salvation you've given us. We are free indeed. And so God, I pray that you teach us how to enjoy your freedom. And I pray for anybody who is here and does not feel free, is not free, God. God, I pray that you free them. I pray that you speak to them today. And God, I pray not only for those who are here, I pray for those who are in this valley, God, who are not free. God, I pray that you visit them this morning and speak to them. And I pray that you teach us how to communicate your love, how to communicate your salvation. So thank you for today. Thank you for your presence, even as Tommy preaches. I pray that you speak through him. And again, I pray that you teach us how to listen to your Holy Spirit as he speaks. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Welcome. We got a lot of parents in the house. Let's go. 
It's awesome. My name is Tommy. I'm the director of teaching and ministry here at Mercy House. This is also Family Sunday, like you heard. So if you're a third through fifth grader, we're excited that you're here. If you are a uh, first through second grader, you're going to join this lovely crew to head on downstairs to Mercy House Kids at this time. But those uh, who are in third through fifth grade, um, Family Sunday is just something that's really important to us as a church. We want to invite those little ones as they grow up in our church to sit under the teaching, be a part of the worship that's happening up here, and really prepare them for what they're going to be a part of, hopefully for a long time. And so that's what Family Weekend is all about, and it's kind of like Family Weekend on a lot of different levels today, so that's really exciting. So I'm going to jump into things. Uh, This semester, we've been working through a sermon series called The Long Road Home. And so if you're just joining us now, here's the gist. Uh, We're going through the Songs of Ascents, which are a collection of 15 psalms, Psalm 120 to Psalm 134, which Israel curated together as kind of a playlist of songs to sing during their many pilgrimages back to Jerusalem. And so the road home to Jerusalem was a long road. Uh, They faced a lot of physical challenges, emotional challenges, spiritual challenges on their way back to Jerusalem. And so these psalms, they were written and sung with the purpose of really helping Israel keep it all together on their way. Uh, It was their way of not just tuning out some of the challenges of the world, but really tuning into who God is. And as the challenges and the hardships of life came, which they often kind of drift us away from God, these songs helped realign them back into the reality of what it meant to be in a relationship with God. And so the long road home, it was long, uh, but it was worth it. It was worth it for Israel. It, it was home for them in every sense of the word. Uh, it was where they felt culturally normal. It was where they felt emotionally supported. It was where they felt physically safe within the walls. It was where they felt spiritually refreshed as a community. And so Jerusalem really was a place where they were able to rest. It was unlike any other place in the world. It was where they had true shalom or peace in every aspect of their existence as humans. And so it truly was a slice of heaven for Israel. And so it was worth the constant trek that put them in physical risk every single time they made that trek, which also took an emotional and a spiritual toll on them as people. Now, sometimes Uh, The emotional and spiritual tolls of life are going to be far more damaging and painful than any physical hardship. That's what we saw last week. We dove into the experience of living under constant contempt, someone looking down on you, speaking uh, poorly of you, and just trying to break you down consistently and constantly. And so whether that's the the contempt of others or maybe even the contempt that we have upon ourselves, and and I don't know about you, but after listening to uh, the the text and and, and thinking about uh, being under contempt and being contemptuous toward others, I was just really convicted all week, seeing all the places where in my pridefulness I was tempted to be contemptuous toward other people. But whatever place of prideful superiority birds our contempt of others, the way that it gets like amputated and cut out of us is upon reflection of the fact that the greatest contempt in our sinfulness and our brokenness, uh, that's been removed from us for those of us who are in Christ. And so as we lift our eyes to God who sits enthroned in heaven, our maker, the lover of our souls to tell us who we are, that's where true shalom is. In Christ, who took the contempt that we experience on himself upon the cross, we're made righteous and pure. And so the power of Satan's contempt was destroyed. We no longer are condemned in our brokenness, no longer alienated from God, no longer worthless or vile, but precious to God, beautiful in his sight. Mercy House, this has profound ramifications for us as Christians. As Christians, we can lift our eyes to God who sits enthroned in heaven, making us immune to the contempt of the world. 
uh, and being empowered in that immunity to do really the impossible, which is to love our enemies. The gospel flips our prideful contempt upside down, and it enables us to do the opposite, to have compassion. The opposite of contempt is compassion. And so the way that we are able to laugh in the face of contempt, very similar to the early church we see in Acts chapter 5, and are able to truly shrug off the contempt of others and even rejoice and sing about it, which again we see in Acts chapter 5, we can lovingly engage others through it and really care for one another with compassion. The way that we do that is by being transformed by the gospel in our understanding of who God is and who we are in Christ. So not with more self-confidence or bolstering our emotional resiliency, but with confidence in the work of Christ and the emotional security that we have as children of God. So that was last week. If you weren't here, there it was. That was the, the, the episode recap. Now, the, this experience of being challenged to trusting God and resting in Him for emotional and physical security was, was not something that was new to Israel. It, it was really the engine that drove their existence as a nation. And you would see as you read through uh, the Old Testament that God is leading Israel in a very personal way. He's engaging them, not just as a master does to a servant, not just as a creator, creator does to the created, but as a father does to his children. And it's in this relationship with God that Israel draws hope and comfort as they navigated the long road home. And so this is what we see this morning in Psalm 124. It's a reflection on who God is, what God has done, and how that process of reflection empowers them to keep moving forward. So if you have your Bibles, if it isn't already open to Psalm 124, why don't you hop there? We're going to start with verse 1. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, When people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive. When their anger was kindled against us, then the flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us. Then over us would have gone the raging waters. So this psalm is attributed to King David. And while there aren't a lot of uh, incredibly specific details that are going to give us the context of him writing this, there are some clues as you read through it. Uh, One of the earlier threats to Israel uh, were the Philistines. Uh, The Philistines really clashed up against the nation of Israel many times throughout history. Uh, Their armies went back and forth in wars and battles, and David himself experienced his first battle as a teenager when he fought Goliath. And one passage that has some really similar imagery to Psalm 124 is in 2 Samuel chapter 5. So uh, keep a finger in uh, Psalm 124. We're going to also be looking in 2 Samuel. And, and this takes place when David is reigning. He's been newly anointed the king, uh, but Israel as a kingdom has really been beat back by the Philistines. And so what we see uh, starting in verse 17 of chapter 5, when the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. But David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. And so the Philistines were coming for David. They're trying to deliver the crushing blow to Israel, who was already reeling from crushing defeats. And when David heard that they were coming, he didn't mount up right away. 
He didn't call in the cavalry. He didn't stand at the gate and, and address his people with like an epic speech about needing to stand your ground, fighting with all the courage and ferocity that you have to defend your family and, and, and everything that you stand for. Like that's not what he does. What he, do, what he does is he goes inside. He goes down into the stronghold, which really is a place of retreat that you would fall back into when you had lost your city. But David doesn't lay down there in defeat, waiting for the Philistines to come find him. Look at verse 19. And David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. And David came to Baal Perazim, and David defeated them there. And he said, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. Therefore, the name of that place is called Baal-perazim. And the Philistines left their idols there, and David and his men carried them away. See, there's a reason why David doesn't mount up and stage a defense. His confidence is not in his army. It's not in his horses. It's not in his generals. It's not in the swords or the shields that they have in their armory. David goes, and he prays to God because he knows that even from his youth, the, the outcome of battles and the trials and the hardships of life are not determined by the strength of your army or the strength of your own arm. Like, even when he was just a boy, when he went out against this massive and powerful veteran warrior who is Goliath, he, he knew this. And at that time, all of Israel was terrified of this man, Goliath. But David mounted up at that point. And was it because he thought that he was like the greatest warrior that Israel had ever produced? Absolutely not. Look at where his confidence is. It, it, this is flipping back one, one book to 1 Samuel chapter 17. It's going to be up on your screen. It says, And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. So David's confidence is drawn from his relationship with God. He remembered how God had been there for him in the past as a little shepherd boy, how God had protected him from threats like lions and bears. And so he trusted that God would show up for David like he already had. For him, it was a matter of logic. And as I read this, this next passage of when Goliath and David actually meet for the first time, listen to the conviction and, and the confidence that David has in his God. 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 41. Again, it's going to be on your screen. And the Philistine, this is Goliath, moved forward and came near David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with sword and with spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. Welcome to family weekend, right? See, he's not a little shepherd boy anymore right here. 
even as a teenager, which he's about 15 here, David understood this very critical reality that God is the ultimate protector. He's the ultimate source of power, that nothing can outmaneuver or outsmart God. If David was trying to find confidence in the strength of his arm or even the strength of his armor, like he would have been doomed. He, he was a teenager. He was referred to as a cute little boy, even by his own people. The armor that they gave him to try to suit him up to, to go fight Goliath was too big and cumbersome. Like He couldn't even carry it on his shoulders to go into the battle. But David knew better than to draw his confidence in himself or his own strength or even the armor that he wore. And this early experience with Goliath confirmed the faith and trust that he had put into God, which continued on into his adulthood as king over all of Israel. And so this is why in the face of fear and death in 2 Samuel chapter 5, later on in his life, David again doesn't trust in the strength of his army or his arm. He runs down into a quiet, secluded place in his stronghold, something that was a well-formed habit for him at this point in his life, and he prayed to God. He looks to God for wisdom, for direction, for guidance, and for protection. And God answers him. And in this case, God delivers him. In 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 20, And David came to Baal Perazim, and David defeated them there. And he said, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. Therefore, the name of that place is called Baal Perazim. So the image there of, of God delivering him, having, quote, broken through like a breaking flood, is the reason why many commentators believe that David is drawing from this specific experience as he writes Psalm 124. So let's uh, go back to Psalm 124. So starting with verse 1 again. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, when people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive. Then their anger was kindled, when their anger was kindled against us, then the flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us, and over us would have gone the raging waters." So the image of a powerful torrent of unstoppable water that David is using is in reference to God. What he's saying is that uh, had not God been on Israel's side, they would have met the same fate as the Philistines. They would have been swept away like their enemies, completely submerged and destroyed by the mighty hand of God. And it's actually kind of cool that we have this psalm because it helps us understand where David was emotionally at that time and, and how he looks back on that experience. And as we take some time to draw the connections between David's experience and, and 2 Samuel chapter 5 and his reflections of those experiences, I think that there are three takeaways for us that David himself also had. The first is that we are hopeless with God. I'm sorry, without God. We are hopeless without God. The second, that God deserves all glory. And the third is remembering the past gives us endurance in the present and hope in the future. And so, number one, we are hopeless without God. It's, it's clear as we read this psalm how David felt about his predicament in 2 Samuel chapter 5 as the Philistines encamped around him. He was doomed. And, and this is partly why he didn't just mount up right away and go off into battle. So never mind understanding that it's God who delivers and God who rescues. Strategically, practically, David is in a bad spot. And we see that he recognizes this in the psalm itself. Uh, David is saying, if it had not been for the Lord. So he's saying this two times. He's repeating himself. He's saying, we would have been utterly destroyed. We would have been swallowed up. We would have been washed away and just blown right off the map. See, David has this very sobering understanding of that situation as he reflects on it. 
of just how fragile and, and minuscule his existence as a human being is and how easily it would have been for him to just die very quickly. If I were to write a song about a near-death experience, I would call it A Night on the Nile, A Night on the Nile. Uh, in 2009, I, I traveled with some people to spend uh, a little bit over a month in Uganda. We were working with an organization called Come Let's Dance, uh, and, and actually almost everyone who went on that trip with me is either in this room or serving downstairs right now. So Luke Showalter, David Bourgeois, Virginia Zenchenko, and none of us at that time were married, and it was an incredible experience for all of us. A lot happened. It was really transformative, but I want to tell you about how we almost died, all right? <laughs> So toward the end of our time in Uganda, we're staying at this place called the Hairy Lemon, uh, which is on a little island in the middle of the Nile River, and, and you had to take a little canoe uh, in order to get there, and the canoe is carved out of a tree trunk, not very stable, uh, and the current really isn't too strong, so it's not a big deal, um, and it was a really cool spot because just down the river, like you could see it with your eyes, are these massive rapids. There's a picture here. These are class four, five, six rapids. It, it's like world-renowned. People come here to do whitewater rafting. And so you'd see them during the day, and they're having fun, they're hooping and hollering, and it's awesome. Anyway, the last day we're there, it's, it's raining all day, from like the moment we woke up all the way through the day, uh, and we were supposed to leave that day, but that rain delayed us. They had said for every inch of rain, it increased the current in the water by one mile an hour, right? So it was like raining all day, uh, and, and the river was moving really fast. It was really difficult to get from our island just to the shore. Eventually, though, the taxi couldn't wait for us any longer. We couldn't stay another night, and so it was decided that we would just try to make it uh, across. And so this is a picture of us earlier that day. You see it there? It's us in a boat. Is there a picture there? Yep. So a few of us, little boat, not very large. Um, that was when it was sun shining. It was beautiful, but when we went out there, it was nighttime. Right, so we saddle up with our headlamps, we get all of our gear tucked onto us uh, into this little tree trunk of a boat, uh, and as soon as we push off, the, uh, off to head to shore, like the current just rips us downriver, like right away. And I'm watching the boat captain, and we're sitting all facing the boat captain, and the boat captain's in the back, and we're going, like, we're traveling backwards. He's traveling forwards, and he's, like, really struggling with his oar to, like, try to get us to the shore. Uh, and, and, and we start, like, hearing this noise behind us, like this white noise machine that's going off over our shoulders. And I remember, oh, there are, like, rapids, like, very near uh, to where we are, and we're heading that way. And so we're flying backwards, and it's getting louder and louder. And I remember just this moment where uh, the, the boat captain, I guess you can call I mean, he's got an oar, and he's directing us. So the boat captain, he just ditches his oar, and he hangs on to the sides of the boat. And I was like, what? what's going on? That was the moment I was like, I'm going to die. I, I think I'm actually going to die. Like, we're flying backwards. At night, after this huge rainstorm, we've got all of our gear, like, strapped to us, like our backpacking gear. Um, it, it, we're, we're going backwards. It's, it's, it, we're in the Nile River, and there's, like, rapids rapidly approaching behind us. Like, there's no Coast Guard here. We're about to meet our maker. And so I follow the cue of the captain, and I hold on to the edges because I don't know what else to do. Something incredibly strange happens. Like, we're flying, it's getting really loud, and then we slam into something so hard, and everyone on the boat stands up instinctively, which in reality, if you did that, it would just, like, topple over because it's narrower than a canoe. But we stand up, and it's, like, as solid as solid ground. And what had happened was our boat got wedged between these two giant boulders, and it is so loud. Like, it is deafening. We can't even hear each other. We're trying to scream to each other, and I kid you not, our, like, I look over the edge, and, like, this is is like a huge fall into all of the rapids. Like our boat was pinned right there. 
And long story short, like we're screaming, we're holding each other's hands, we eventually make our way through the water back to shore, and we're alive here to tell the story. So that was the night on the Nile River where we almost died. So when I hear this psalm, it rings true. If it had not been for the Lord, our boat would have launched off that waterfall, and our bodies would have probably never been recovered. If it had not been for the Lord, the flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us. Then over us would have gone the raging waters. See, these verses resonate very deeply for me because of my experience that night on the Nile. Like, I am totally convinced that had it not been for God, we would have all been dead. If it had not been for God, there would be 12 less children downstairs this morning than there are. And listen, maybe you haven't had this dramatic experience to help you understand your mortality or your fragility as a human being, but let me tell you something. Like, there's no such thing as luck or good fortune. There just isn't. If you've ever had a close call where you said, whew, that was pretty close, or if you've ever, like, narrowly escaped a situation, you're like, wow, that could have gone bad real fast, that was God right? Remember when we looked at Psalm 121 earlier this semester, in 121 verse 3 says, he, this is God, will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. And so what we talked about there is that God is intimately involved and sovereign in our well-being. And God was, uh, was doing this for David as well, and David was profoundly aware of this fact. Even as he sings about his victory over the Philistines, he's not like, wow, we got really lucky right there. And he wasn't like, wow, that was a stroke of military genius out of me that I had. No, what he's saying is that if it had not been for the Lord, I would not be here right here writing and singing this psalm. Mercy House, we're no different today. Like, this is not an archaic or a primitive thought that David is having. Like, we are truly hopeless without God. We, we rely on him to, to keep us alive, even to breathe. See, we, we might even think that we have control over our own breathing, but he's the one that's responsible for firing the neurons across our brain to tell our lungs to take a breath. And then he's responsible for coordinating the muscles in our diaphragm to, to, to expand and for our lungs to draw in the breath. He re, he's responsible for the oxygen that's in the air, the perfect balance between nitrogen and oxygen and all the other gases that exist so that we can breathe and stay alive. We see this in places like Acts chapter 17 and verse 24. This is going to be on your screen. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Mercy House, we breathe because God wills it, he enables it, and he sustains it. We are hopeless without God. Despite what the world says, despite what our culture says, despite even what we might think, see, God is not like a mental exercise that just helps us enhance our lives or, or, or makes us feel a little bit less guilty. We are truly hopeless without God, endlessly dependent on Him. If it were not for the Lord, mercifully and graciously giving us life at this very moment in time, then we would all be dead. Now, you might say, gee, that's pretty dark, Tommy, for Family Sunday. Well, it's just the reality. And notice here that for David, it doesn't lead him to a place of, of darkness or despair or depression. It actually gives him hope. It gives him joy. It made him sing like he wrote a song about it because he realized that, yes, he's hopelessly doomed without God, but that God is also responsible for maintaining his life and upholding all of creation. And then most importantly, 
that God is for him. God is for us. Look at verse 1 again. If it had not been for the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side. So this is critical for David, that God is on his side. The second realization that David has, I think, as he's reflecting on his near-death experience is this, that God deserves all the glory. God deserves all the glory. Most kings would boast in their own glory. How far their, uh, their power reached, how deep their coffers of gold were, but David was a different kind of king. And seeing his dependence and need for God, David understood that even as a king, God deserves all of the glory. And see, this is one thing uh, where you can acknowledge that we are hopeless without God to stay alive, but it's another to praise Him and to give Him glory for keeping us alive. Ascribing glory means praising, it means adoring, it means acknowledging uh, truth with a sense of appreciation for that truth. And so giving glory to God requires a level of humility. Humility does not just make us more likable. It's not just like a, a, a desirable character trait. Humility is having a correct understanding of ourselves in light of who God is. So can you imagine if David tried to boast in this psalm, if he tried to make it about himself? Like he has nothing to boast about here. This doesn't mean that we put on a false sense of humility, but it does mean examining ourselves, taking the time to look at our lives, to see where we've come from, acknowledge whatever accomplishments we've had or the victories that we've experienced or the near-death experiences or any cause for celebration at all in our lives, examining all of those with the humble clarity uh, and, and, and giving God the adoring praise and thanksgiving for His hand in it in our lives. And so this process of reflection, of looking back, it's really important. David thought so, because what he understood was the third point I have this morning, which is that remembering the past gives us endurance in the present and hope in the future. Remembering the past gives us endurance in the moment and hope in the future. This is really the essence of this psalm for David. In part, you have to imagine uh, that this psalm is, is, is just as much for him as it is for all of Israel. And David is remembering how God had been there for him in the past, and he's recalling uh, a moment when, when, when he trusted in God. And in that moment of his faith being exercised and God coming through, it gives him endurance and, and, and what he's dealing with in the present, but then it also gives him ultimately a, a hope for the future. Yesterday, I was at Bacon and Bibles uh, with the men of Mercy House, and it was a beautiful morning. We ate a ton. Of, we cooked 15 pounds of bacon. Uh, and we read the Bible. It was a great time. Uh, and in my breakout group, we were talking about how, how the challenging tests of life, uh, where we run to God and we're challenged to put our trust in Him, uh, and we actually see Him come through in those moments, like that builds our faith for future challenges. And then when future challenges come and we experience God's faithfulness in deeper, maybe darker moments in life, it builds our faith even further. And this is how trials build faith. When we choose uh, to, 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 to come to God and put our hope and our trust in God and we see him come through, like that builds up our faith. See, David did not just wake up one day with a ton of faith. It, his faith was forged through years of trusting in God. As a little shepherd boy in the fields, as a young man fighting battles, and then as an older man leading an entire nation. And trials to him were not like an inconvenience for him. They didn't have a purpose. Like they were just annoyances. Trials are the furnace in which deeper faith in God is forged. That's where it's forged. 
And it can be painful sometimes. It can be a scary process to trust God and, and to have our faith grown. And David knew this, which is why he made such an effort over and over and over again to remember these lessons. He got as much mileage out of these experiences of trusting God as he could because they weren't easy to experience. And even as I've written this sermon, I reflect on how God saves our lives, saved our lives in the Nile River, right? It, it has bolstered my faith and, and, and my hope. It, it puts God's protection of me in context. So when I'm on my roof cleaning my gutters and I feel like a little bit nervous, I'm like, oh, I don't know about this, Tommy, you might die. I can remember, right, like, Tommy, God pinned your rickety boat between two boulders and held you so firmly that not even the rushing waters of a flooded Nile could sweep you away. So chill out, Tommy. If God wants you to come home to him, like, so be it. Like, there's nothing that's going to keep you on this route. But if it's not your time, like, there ain't nothing that's going to rip you off this route. And so it's been encouraging to me, but, and, and it's encouraging to David, but it's also not like this solo experience. So what I love about this passage is that David is leading his community in the process of collective remembrance. He's saying in verse 1, if it had not been for the Lord who was on our side, and then he turns to everybody and says, let Israel now say, which is another way of saying, in other words, uh, say it with me all now. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, like he's inviting all of Israel to come in on the song with him. He leads them to actively recite with their own lips how God has been faithful to them, which leads me to be confirmed in my belief that verbal articulation of truth is important and it is valuable. And that's why we sing songs out loud on a Sunday morning. It's why we sometimes do call and responses that involve your participation. It's why we pray together out loud. It's because there's something powerful happening when we together speak aloud the truths about God. Do you know why Israel was constantly reminding themselves of what God had done? Because they constantly forgot. Like Israel constantly forgot. The word remember is, two, is in the Bible 253 times in Scripture. 178 of those are in the Old Testament. 75 of those are in the New Testament. And that's because humans forget. But memory of past experiences of God's faithfulness and, and the truth about who he is and who we are are critical in our faith and our walk with God. David knew this. That's why he penned this song, which is why he invited his community in to sing it alongside him, to remember God's faithfulness in moments where we need help. And so when we're unsure of ourselves in certain situations, when our circumstances bring us to a place of uncertainty, fear, anxiety, we need to remember where God has shown up in our lives. And maybe you take some time this week during a quiet time to reflect to soberly and, and accurately consider how God has kept you alive to this point in your life, how he has worked and moved and delivered you in your life. And let that list, that process of reflection, give you confidence in God. Remembering the past gives us endurance in the present and hope in the future. Mercy House, not just as individuals, but we need to do this collectively as a church, especially in the season that we're in. So we're going through a transition right now. Our lead pastor has just resigned, and so it's quite normal for us to feel maybe unsure about the future, and, 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 and maybe for that to cause some uneasiness in us, and maybe even some anxiety or some panic, 
But instead of us as a church reflectively, or I'm sorry, reflexively mounting up and just running off into battle and trying to solve problems and come up with a game plan, I think we need to first spend some time retreating like David down into the keep. We need to pray to God for wisdom and for discernment, which is what your leaders are doing. But we're inviting all of you as a church to do that alongside of us. And at the same time, we need to recall and we need to recount all the ways that God has miraculously intervened in these past 22 years for us as a church to keep his family here together. And God has provided faithful, Bible-based, gospel-centric preaching and teaching for 22 years in Amherst, Massachusetts. He sent countless war of warriors in the faith to come from all over the world to fight the good fight here in this valley. He's amassed an entire network of donors and contributors and prayer warriors across the entire country, across the globe. He's provided us this beautiful building that's a quarter mile from campus and right down the street from downtown. He showered us with tons of resources in this little posting in Amherst, Massachusetts. And he's brought hundreds of people to faith in Christ. And he's helped establish and mature thousands of others. So when we look at verse 1, if it had not been for the Lord who was on our side, Mercy House, say it with me. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, Mercy House, we would not be here. We'd be washed out of here in the blink of an eye. It, Mercy House, it, if God wants Mercy House's faithfulness as a, I'm sorry, fruitfulness as a church to end, like, so be it. There, there's nothing that we can do, no, no amount of programming we can do to keep things happening. But if God wants our church to continue to contribute to the building of his kingdom here in this valley, look at me, there ain't nothing that's going to shut down this church. Like, there's nothing that's going to thwart the will of God. There's no uncertainty. There's, there's not a doubt or, or fear. There's no hurt or pain or amount of hard conversations or, or poor systems or structures or people leaving the church or poor giving or hairy finances. Like, there are no lies from Satan, no schemes of man that are going to thwart the will of God. And that's something we need to remember as a church. As things look a little hairy, a little uncertain, we need to remember whose church this is. And as we navigate through the season of uncertainty together as a church, let's remember over and over again the, the miraculous work that God has done to keep this house together in his name. And this will help us endure. It'll help us endure the season, this moment, but it also will give us a bright hope for the future as well. Let's read these last verses and we'll finish for the morning, starting in verse 6. Blessed be the Lord who has not given us as prey to their teeth, we have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken, and we have escaped. I think what we see when we read this is that in some instances, God straight up protected Israel completely. It says, blessed be the Lord who has not given us as prey to their teeth. But in other instances, being protected did not mean that they went unscathed. We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. So this implies, at least for a moment, they were trapped, that they were ensnared. And in order to escape, which God enables them to do, that means that they were at one point in the hands of their enemies. I think this is important to point out because practically, the theology here is not that those who trust in God are going to leave life unscathed. It's not a charge for us to pray to God when we're in a bind and that he'll always get us out of a sticky situation. Like, that's not the application of this, of, of this text. 
We know that David understood this because of how he prayed to God about this moment when he felt trapped. So going back to 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 19, he, uh, it says, And David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? So for David, defeat was a possibility. It was something that was in his mind. And so this isn't like a health and safety gospel. David is not of the thinking that God will automatically deliver him or even that winning battles was the most important thing. What was most important to David was not victory or defeat in the challenges of life. It was being in relationship with God through those challenges of life, regardless of what that outcome looked like. And David wasn't in a relationship with God so that he would have victories in battle. His victories and his defeats were the furnace in which he built his faith in God. And he further, and further deepened his relationship with God. Like David truly loved God. That's why he was in a relationship with him. And he wanted more of God, whatever that cost him, uh, whatever that cost his kingdom. And we'll also come to learn in our spiritual maturity that the problems of this world are trivial when compared to eternal reality. It's not to say that what we're going through and some of the challenges that you're, you're facing, the hardships that you're enduring are not legitimate. Uh, like uh, the fear of death, the anxiety of uncertainty, those are real things that we experience. But what we have to learn as we grow is, uh, and as we gain wisdom is that life's problems are relative. They are relative. Like my children cry, sometimes uncontrollably weep when we don't have dessert, right? Like it's the end of the world for them. I remember the first time I got like an F on a test, like it literally said F, like see me after class. I thought my life was over. Like I was like, I'm dead. Like just bury me now, right? And as I got older, right, like I lost a job and I was like, how am I going to live? Like I lost a job. And then I was able to find another job. And, and like life goes on like this. And like to be honest with you, like my greatest fear now is losing my wife and my children. Like that would devastate me. That, that there are people that I treasure in my life right now. But I'm sure that there is someone somewhere, maybe here in this room, who has experienced that. Who, and maybe more importantly, they have experienced God's faithfulness in that dark pit and has some other worst-case scenario in life. And so life's challenges are relative to the threshold in which we have experienced them. And so our main concern, then, should be like David's, and not necessarily uh, victory or defeat or, or success or failure or leaving life unscathed or experiencing pain and hurt. It should be that in any of these situations, that these are opportunities to experience deeper relationship with our Creator, a deeper relationship with God. The problem is, is that as we stand outside of the work of Christ, this relationship with God is impossible. In our sinfulness, we are unrighteous, and we are separated from the righteousness of God. And Paul says this in Romans 6.23, that the wages of sin is death. So if you're not a Christian, you are trapped like a bird in the snare of the fowler, you are snared, you're, you're held captive as a prisoner because of your sin. And the outcome of the bird ensnared by fowlers, and a fowler is a bird hunter, uh, is death. And that's the point of, of trapping a bird if you're a hunter, is that you're going to kill that bird. You're going you're gonna to eat that bird or sell that bird. So for those of us who don't have a relationship with Jesus, our, our outcome is the same. It's similar to this. We are trapped in our sin and in our brokenness. 
But listen to me, no matter what situation you find yourself in life, no matter how serious you feel it is or how bleak the outcome is or how scared you are, there is no predicament that is more terrifying than being ensnared and enslaved in your sin and doomed to the outcome of eternal death and separation from God. Like this is relatively the absolute worst case scenario. There is nothing worse than this. But God, but God in his love and his mercy made a way for us to actually be able to be free. Through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we are graciously given an opportunity to be restored back into relationship with God. And this is not just like for a day. This is not for a lifetime. This is all of eternity. And so we can sing along with David in verse 6, Blessed be the Lord who has not given us as prey to their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken and we have escaped Mercy House, if, if you have received Christ by faith, this is your life song. We have escaped the jaws of eternal death, the snare of sin and shame which have trapped us, which at one time trapped us for all of eternity and separated us from God, has been broken, and we are free. We're free. We receive this grace by faith. And when we do that, we're like criminals who are on death row, awaiting our execution, trapped in ourselves. And the sentence is just because our crimes are undeniable, but Jesus, having lived a perfect, innocent, sinless life, he walks into that room and he says, I love you. I want to restore you back to myself. And God the Father who stands as judge says, son, like, it's going to cost you. It's going to cost you everything. It's going to cost you your life. And Jesus looks at us and says, so be it. And he takes our place on the cross. Mercy House, we belong on that cross. We belong on that cross, but Jesus has taken our spot. He has died the death that we all deserve in order to restore us back to himself. And all we need to do is believe and trust by faith in his work on the cross. And with that, the eternal prison doors slide open and we are free. And verse 7 says, we have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken and we have escaped by the blood of Christ. So Mercy House, if you are a Christian, you have nothing to fear. When we experience freedom from the snare, escape from the worst possible scenario, the relatively most terrible outcome of our lives, the, the escaping that eternal death, the trials and the tribulations of this world are not worth comparing to the eternal hope that we have laid up in Christ. And God has shown up for us in the darkest, the most dire place. And as we reflect on that, it will give us endurance in the moment and hope in the future. And so this is the whole of the Christian experience. It's an ongoing reflection back on the gospel. If you've been listening to these sermons and you're wondering, man, why does Tommy always land on like the same runway every single week? It's because the words of scripture bear witness to Jesus and the gospel. And maybe you're like, man, why does every psalm land on Jesus' work on the cross? Because every psalm bears witness to Jesus. If you come to this church, this is what you're going to get week in and week out, Lord willing. Mercy, I'll say, if, if you hear a sermon from this pulpit that doesn't land on the redeeming work of Christ and the cross, like something has gone terribly wrong. And I give you full permission to like boo whoever is preaching if the preacher is not exalting Christ. And even if that preacher is me, like say boo, talk about Jesus. We want to hear about Jesus. 
And so worship all together as one body is about remembering what God has done and letting that inform how we are to understand ourselves, how we are to understand the world, and how we're able to understand our future. Romans 1, 16 says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And so each week, we're going to return here. And like David and Israel and the temple of Jerusalem, we will recount the wondrous deeds of God. We'll remind ourselves of what he's done and our reliance on him so that when we're in a tight spot, when the fears of the world creep in, when uncertainty produces anxiety in us, when we are afraid of what's to come, we will sing all together with glad hearts, with full confidence alongside all the saints and all the generations. And we're going to finish out on this last verse, verse 8. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Let Mercy House now say, say it with me. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your great and mighty love for each and every one of us in this room. We thank you for how you've shown that, that love to us on the cross, how you have set us free. I pray for those who are trapped and ensnared, that you would grant them freedom, that they would cling to you and the work that you've done to redeem them. God, thank you that the trap is broken. Thank you that the snare has been destroyed. Thank you that we who put our faith and our confidence in you never have to worry about being ensnared or trapped by Satan ever again. Thank you that this work is eternal. Father, thank you that we can come to you when we need help, knowing all the ways that you have been faithful to us in the past. And so I pray that as we bring our challenges, our anxieties to you this morning, that we would also be able to recount the places and the times that we, we've seen you at work in our lives. And for those who haven't seen that, who don't have a relationship with them, let this be the first memory, God. Lord, I pray that people would see you for who you are. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to worship you all together, God. We love you. We thank you. We praise you. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.